Chapter 20 of Ashton Kirk, Secret Agent, by John Thomas McIntyre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pete Milan. Chapter 20 Fresh Developments On the following morning, Ashton Kirk entered his study. A few moments later, Stumpf followed him bearing a cup of coffee. And while his employer sipped this, Stumpf gravely remonstrated. You should not work. You have had too little sleep. Has Purvis come in? asked the other, heedlessly. Yes, he is waiting. Then, not to be deterred, the man added, glancing at the patch of white plaster which covered the wound on his employer's head. You will be ill. You should rest. There is work which must be done, smiled Ashton Kirk. You don't always lay up yourself, Stumpf, when you are out of sorts. No, sir, replied the man, gravely. But this... Ask Purvis to come in. A few moments later, a young man with a prominent nose and a long chin came into the room. Good morning said he. I understand from Fuller that you wanted me last night. It did not matter as things turned out. My orders, said Purvis, were to follow any of the household. When Drevenoff left the place, I got after him according to instructions. But, with a disgusted air, would you believe it? I lost him. If Ashton Kirk was annoyed at this, he did not show it. How was that? he inquired. He boarded the train at Eastbury, explained Purvis, and I did the same. For the life of me, I don't know how he did it, for I thought I had my eye on him all along. But when the train reached the city, he was not on it. Perhaps he noticed me and took a desperate chance while the train was moving. O'Neill is at the Fordham Road house, said Ashton Kirk. I want you to relieve him at noon. Very good, said Purvis. Any instructions? Nothing more than that you are to keep track of anything that may happen. O'Neill is to relieve you again at midnight. When Purvis had taken his leave, Ashton Kirk rang for Fuller. That young man entered. In spite of his loss of sleep, he looked as brisk as ever. What about the motor cab? asked the secret agent. I looked up the various stations. The nearest to Okiu's house is on Collingwood Avenue. I called them on the telephone, but could get no satisfaction. Then I paid them a visit, with better results. Okiu called a cab about midnight. Its driver's name is Freeman, and he lives on 19th Street. Having gone off duty, I thought he would probably be at his boarding house. So I went there and was lucky enough to find him at home. Yes, he recalled the trip to Eastbury, and remembered perfectly that he had run his fare all the way to the city and to the railroad station. Then I went to the station. Again I was fortunate. A Jap, answering Okiu's description, had been sold two tickets at just about the time the taxi driver said he had reached the station. You inquired to what points the tickets were bought? 
Yes. And here Fuller's face expressed great satisfaction. They were for Washington. The secret agent arose to his feet, his singular eyes shining with excitement, his nostrils dilating like those of a thoroughbred facing the barrier. After a few turns up and down the room, he said, This looks like the last stage of the chase. We must win now or never. Washington, said Fuller, is headquarters for such things as that secret document. The embassies just yawn for them. There was a short pause. Ashton Kirk halted at a window and looked down at the eager, grubbing horde in the street. What have you heard from Burgess? he asked. He sent in a long written report this morning. It would seem that the flurry on Fordham Road was not the only one last night, or rather this morning. Fuller handed the other a number of folded sheets. They ran... I am sending this by messenger. Can't leave the job myself. About an hour ago, Karkowski got a call on the telephone. A man came to his room door and began hammering to wake him up. The phone is on the first floor. Karkowski hurried down to answer, and I followed him. He went into the booth. I couldn't hear what was said, but I could see him through the glass door. And if ever a man listened to anything with attention, he was that man. As I watched him, I could see that he grew more and more excited. Then he hung up and rushed out of the booth. The first thing he did was to snatch down a timetable from a rack. Skimming it over, he threw it aside and then was off upstairs. I managed to get possession of the timetable. It was a schedule of Washington trains. Just now, it looks as though my man were going to jump out for Washington. If he does, I'll call you. Burgess. So, said Ashton Kirk, as he laid the report upon the table. Our friend Karkowski also shows an interest in Washington. Has Burgess called as yet? Yes, I had a short talk with him a while ago. He was then at the station waiting for the train which Karkowski was to take. And, continued Fuller, he told me of something more. It seems that while he was waiting at the Low Street place for Karkowski to make a move, he thought he'd like to know who had the pole on the phone, and put him into such a state of mind. So he called the operator. This is such and such a number, he says. What number was that who just called me? It was so-and-so number, says the girl, after a little. All right says he. Give me that. Well, said Ashton Kirk. It was a tavern on Fordham Road, about a block from Morse's, said Fuller. The barkeeper answered. The only person he'd seen using the telephone was a young fellow who talked a foreign language, a Pole who lived at Morse's, the place he said where the man was killed a few nights ago. That was enough for Burgess, so he thanked the man and hung up. Drevenoff has heard something, smiled Ashton Kirk. 
Altogether, he seems a marvelously well-posted young man. There was some further talk between the two. Then Fuller went out, and Ashton Kirk continued to stand by the window, gazing down at the thronging, chaffering, noisy crowd. Large horses drew small loads, while small men staggered under large ones. Heady cries summoned those at a distance to the spots where bargains in faded vegetables or decaying fish were to be had. The stone steps of the houses were filled with men in hard hats and upturned coat collars. Women with their heads wrapped in knitted shawls peered out between the folds in stolid wonder. At length, he turned from the window, sat down in the wide-armed chair, and lighted the German pipe. Clouds began to gather above his head and to curl into the outer air. The rumble of wheels, the outcries of the drivers and hucksters, the undertone of those cautiously sparring for the advantage in a trade, stole into the room. However, he smoked on, oblivious. But when his pondering seemed at its deepest, and the corrugations between his eyes the most prominent, he suddenly struck the table a blow with his palm and leaped up. That's it, he cried. That's it. What an idiot I was not to think of it before. Putting aside the pipe, he took down a directory and began turning the pages rapidly. Now and then he made a rapid note upon a block of paper. Then he pushed the book away, descended the steps two at a time, and in the lower hall put on his hat. Stumpf, hurrying to be of some service, reached the hall just as the street door slammed. And through a window he saw Ashton Kirk, with eager tread, hurrying up the street. End of chapter 20